Hello there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, with me today is Scott. That's me. And in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the Hollywood films produced by the Dutch director Paul Verhoeven. Yep, that's it, that's your introduction. Uh, I'm just going to get straight into it. Scott, let, let's start with Robocop. Yes, and it seems strange for a man of my vintage interest to try and explain Robocop as if it's a thing that's not a universal part of human experience. It's like trying to explain <laughs> how water's wet. Um, it's been part of the background radiation of my life for, well, not quite as long as I can remember, but close enough, and it's almost unfathomable that it is not thus for all of us. However, I suppose time makes fools of us all, and maybe there are some people who only know the not-awful, but certainly nowhere near as good remake of 2014. Gosh, 2014 surprised me there that and i wrote that um yeah how time flies uh yes uh then let me give you give you some plotted recaps of the 1987 original uh, which is set in detroit in one of those 80s near futures where we seem to be a half hour away from crime gangs running rampant on the streets see also predator 2 and the popo are overwhelmed and the government does the only thing it could reasonably do to solve this which is to bring in a corporation to clean up the mess with their ultimate aim being to demolish detroit and build a shining city on a hill with none of them poors getting in the way of their fancy haircuts so when Ronnie Cox's Dick Jones, a senior exec at the Omni Consumer Products' uh, policing project, the uh, semi-mobile gun platform Ed 209 goes quite spectacularly and messily wrong, Miguel Ferrer's ambitious Bob Morton seizes the opportunity to get his robot cop project greenlit, earning him plaudits with his boss, but Dick Jones's enmity, and that's a list that Bob will soon find out that it's unwise to be on. But Robocop needs a head to drive the agreed-upon total body prosthesis, which comes in the shape of Peter Weller's Alex Murphy, a cop recently killed by the rampant, mayhem-causing Boddicker gang run by, well, who else, Kurtwood Smith's Clarence Boddicker, later revealed to be in cahoots with Dick Jones to further OCP's schemes. How deliciously evil. So, then, the soul of the film, I suppose, is about the mind-wiped uh, mind Robocop's mind slowly unwiping, and with help from his old partner, Nancy Allen's Anne Lewis, getting revenge for the Alex Murphy he's gradually reconstructing. Oh, and the ludicrous levels of violence, often involving gruesome fates for Robbot and special effects creations. Poor Emil. Wikipedia tells me that the, the effects were excessively violent because Verhoeven believed it made the scenes funnier. And whether <laughs> Verhoeven actually believed that or not, it's undeniably true. <laughs> it, it might not necessarily be absolutely true that they don't make action films like this these days, but they certainly don't make anything like enough of them. And this is a very fun romp that never gets old. In fact, as corporations encroach ever more in all aspects of life, it's just getting closer and closer to becoming a reality. Yay, dystopia! Uh, <laughs> recommended, 100%. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is one of those films where like, the word classic can genuinely apply to it, I feel. Mm -hmm. It's iconic, it's distinctive, it's memorable. Holds up pretty well, actually. Um, yeah. And some of the special effects look a bit ropey now, but... Uh, stop motion in particular is something that tends yeah. to look bad that said I did and still do f find Ed 209 to be genuinely scary despite mm -hmm. looking like a microphone on legs <laughs> which is presumably the inspiration or like the, the, the source of the parts for the model because it's quite clearly <laughs> a microphone um, but there's something about the very sort of implacable nature of it and it's mm -hmm. countdown of the number of seconds you have to comply that men that I always found Ed 209 decidedly unsettling. Yeah, yeah. And it still has that power to a degree, which is quite nice to find out as a wizened old man. <laughs> <laughs> 
It certainly does quite well, and it, it kind of counterpoints the general trend of science fiction films. Is I can't repeat what some other people have said that are far cleverer than me, but um, it, it would generally have like humans almost acting like robots in the face of. Uh, insufferable odds and this is like the exact opposite it's a robot becoming more human and, uh, and actually yeah. being you know affected and you know traumatized by what's happened to him so it's, it's a very different sort of concept of what would what could well have been a very simple basic straightforward action film with, with just just the shooting and would probably still have been relatively enjoyable for all that but certainly doesn't have anything like the they wouldn't have had anything like the emotional punch that robocop as it stands now does so yeah all fits very yeah. well with the seams you talk of that sort of more conventional sci-fi thing with the, just the robots and stuff too, which is which is what all of the sequels to Overhoven stuff tends to have. Like, this mm. all seems to miss the point entirely. Yeah. The Starship Trooper sequels, the Robocop sequels. Um, so anything like that's in there that's satirical or making some sort of commentary on society or stuff is never there in the sequels. Like, yeah. yeah. why are you doing this? You've just missed the point entirely, you spectacular yeah. fools. Yes. <laughs> um Whereas this one, like, it's full of satire and has the the same sort of news stories and stuff that you can see in Starship Troopers mm-hmm. uh, and in Total Recall as well. And then, you know, it's a clear satire of corporate culture and of police brutality and things. Yeah. Although there are little, little hints there that suggest that, like, it's not all to that sort of side of things because there's a section in in here, the scene when Robocop goes to take out the, the guy who's holding the mayor hostage hmm. and he very clearly drives his car straight through the police tape and it's like, yeah, so <laughs> I do get a feeling he's suggesting like he's just like cutting through like red tape and bureaucracy and stuff. It doesn't seem subtle to me that. No. <laughs> um, so it's like, it says like sometimes like this, again, it's not saying pro police brutality, but it's like sometimes like as well, that there are may, there may be better ways to do things with direct action. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was quite amused that I don't think I'd remembered the line specifically. So while, no, actually, no, it's probably not that long since I last watched Robocop, but just struck by. I actually, I can't believe it wasn't the case in 1987, but struck by the uh, the irony of the the line where Dick Jones says that uh, OCP is moving into traditionally non-profit enterprises such as hospitals and prisons, which yes. uh, nowadays are <laughs> a very big business, Yes, disturbingly, particularly the prisons thing. But yeah, it's, the satire works really well. It also works very well similar as a sci-fi action film. But yeah, it's good to consider more of a brain in it than, again, the sequels and so many other films yeah. in that sort of general genre. It's one of the more practical effects. Like the, some of the effects look bad, but some of it still looks pretty good. Particularly, uh, and I think it's quite notable on the, the Blu-ray releases of like, how good this Robocop suit still looks. Yeah. Because it's absolutely crucial that that suit not look ridiculous. And in the extra definition provided by a Blu-ray transfer that you can see, for instance, around the the chin strap that it looks like it's just been handmade. Uh, mm. Which sort of works simply is that like, he's a prototype. Yeah. So it would be mass-produced. But also, it's sort of come around full circle in that nowadays it looks, it looks like it's something that would have been 3D printed. Like, actually, you know. <laughs> That works, yeah. that's what it would be now. Yeah. 
And while it does look a bit like it's painted plastic, like metallic painted plastic, because it's metallic painted plastic, but it always sort of looked like that. At the same time, it doesn't look like a silly Halloween costume or something. It does actually stand up, even in high definition. It And while it does... Um, again, this is an older film, so it's, it was perhaps slightly less common when it was made, but it does fall into that weird trap of all robots in films having to have a ridiculous foley put on them with lots of solar noise and whirring motors and things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't understand why they would be so loud when they moved, but okay. But beyond that, the, the actual Robocop um, outfit and the movements, they work quite well. Yeah. And Peter Weller does a fantastic job in them. If there's a special effect other than the stop-motion puppetry of Ed 209 that doesn't work well... It's Dick Jones's arms as he falls out of the window. <laughs> Why are they double the length? What happened? <laughs> Every time I watch that, it's like, why? Why? It's like, it, it's bad blue screen. Okay, I I don't mind that. Um, it probably still doesn't look as bad as another film from the same year, The Untouchables, because the blue screen, in fact, Nettie's falling out the window, and that is possibly the worst I've ever seen. <laughs> but, but it's like... Why are his arms suddenly twice the length? What was the thinking there? They must have noticed, surely. Yeah, it's just perspective effects, that's all it is. Yeah. Uh, but just his arms? Yes, yes. Just his arms. Uh, what else is... A couple of points I want to make about this. Um, just that... The, and I noticed it, particularly watching so many of these Pulverhoven films in such close proximity, is that he really doesn't like to spell stuff out for his audience. And I really appreciated that. You sort of, you'll see some bit of technology, maybe in an early scene that comes back to later, but it's never like focused on too much. And certainly nobody in the film is explaining something. Hmm. It's like, you've seen enough of it to understand it. Annoyingly, I forgot to write down whichever thing that particularly struck me in Robocop and Total Recall, for instance, it's the, the scanner that shows guns. Yeah. You see it once, just enough to understand how it works and why it's significant later without having to like really spell stuff out. And there's quite a few things in that, even in Hollow Man, um, for all its faults, where there's like sort of a setup of something that like gives the audience, gives the audience some sort of respect. Like As long as you're paying attention, you'll get that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robocop's full of it, which, is, which I appreciate. And another good thing about... Robocop is that it's got good villains. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, Dick Jones is sort of your typical sleazy corporate executive, but he's kind of menacing. Mm. And there's a, a real swagger to the way that Curtwood Smith plays Clarence Bodicker. And Bodicker's yeah. got a long way to making it a much more entertaining film. So it's just like some sort of miserable megalomaniac or, I don't know, some sort of lesser Bond villain type thing. It's like, oh, it'd be really boring, but no, the real swagger, to, particularly to Karns Bodiker. Yeah, um, yeah. Some really funny lines and stuff. It's, it's great. Yeah, some real uh, swagger to them, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, I get, uh, obviously, again, it's possibly the best roles for some of those people. Yeah. And it's just a, it's just a thoroughly bloody entertaining film. Yeah. If there's one thing I perhaps don't like, it is uh, one character played by 
Jesse Goins, I think. Is that right? Um, Joe, who has this laugh is basically like salacious crumb. <laughs> and it is the most unpleasant thing ever. It's like you're just waiting for him to get shot. I mean, he's a bad guy, so that's fine. But yeah. <laughs> you're just waiting for him to be shot in the face because that laugh, oh, God, that laugh. <laughs> and then it's Ken Pratt's. She's basically the only woman in it, if you don't count the, I guess, the prostitutes that are with Miguel Ferrer when um, Clarence Bodder comes to visit. And Nancy Allen's great. <laughs> yes. Uh, Nancy Can Allen. Fly, Bobby. <laughs> Just give me my fucking phone call. <laughs> Could be all right. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You've totally thrown me off track. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Allen, um, who obviously being Cuban is more vulnerable than Robocop, but she's set up like quite quickly. It's like she's beating up a couple of larger male um, assailants when you first see her. Mm. Um, and that she's like, without having to like spell out and, and just be kind of, oh, she's really strong for women. No, she, just like, she's completely no nonsense, Lewis. And that, that she would be, you know, a, will, a, a worthy partner to Robocop later is shown there without having to, you know, hang a lantern on it so much. So there's yeah. actually quite a lot of craft and a lot of subtlety, which is not what you'd expect from a film about a man who's been turned into a cyborg and had a silly plastic suit put on him. Yeah. <laughs> Again, unfortunately, the sequels kind of missed those points. But <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's a classic film. It really stands up, which is good to know. Yeah, yeah. My, my only enduring negative is I think it's one of the two films in this list that I wound up spending an inordinate amount of money on, a, I think, American DVD copy for, and then they released a better UK one that yes. I could have got for much cheaper. <laughs> but that was the the original the original Criterion Collection version, Scott. Yes, because yeah. you, Craig, and I all got a ridiculously expensive version that turned out to be um, four three letterboxed. Yes, <laughs> oh, not the proper anamorphic transfer. Um, four three letterboxed, and it was gash. Yes. And like the MGM released one here very soon after, which was a considerably better transfer and anamorphic. So, yes, um, the Criterion <laughs> Collection can do wrong. <laughs> and it's not just by in, including certain films in their catalogue that really ought not to be there. <laughs> yes, uh, that's one of my few negatives too, is that I, I think I still have that because honestly, I spent so much money on it that I can't quite bring myself to get rid of it. Yes. I don't know what I'd ever do with it because I, I have the Blu-ray of it, which looks great, but um, <laughs> it's damn you, MGM and Criterion. <laughs> right, let's move on then to Total Recall. So, Mr. Verhoeven, Stuck with the science fiction genre for his next project, an adaptation of the Philip K. Dick short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. A strong contender for the best adaptation of the writer's work, and a thoroughly bloody good romp in its own right. The film stars, as you likely know, we're certainly not beginning with the more obscure entries in Mr. Verhoeven's <laughs> canon. The film stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Red Planet obsessed construction worker Douglas Quaid who visits a company called Recall in order to have a memory of a trip to Mars implanted in his mind, only to have this transaction expose him as an actual spy who's actually been to actual Mars. <laughs> this results in many people actually trying to actually kill him, so you must get his ass to actual Mars and find out what the actual hell is actually happening. On Mars, Quaid, who is, in actuality, Hauser, an agent of Martian Administrator Vilos Kohagen, 
meets with a band of rebels who believe the mysterious alien technology discovered inside one of Cohagen's mines, this technology being a MacGuffinium-powered planet kettle, holds the key to Cohagen's overthrow and the freeing of the inhabitants of Mars from his tyranny. Or does it? This may all be happening inside Quaid's mind, something a doctor from Recall tries to convince him of. Thirty years on, some of Total Recall's effects look a bit ropey, though perhaps not as bad as you might expect, and the things that matter, the performances, the pacing, the plot, and indeed other things that don't even begin with P, all hold <laughs> up very well. Verhoeven's typical excess is here, and it fits, and there's also humour throughout. Crucially too, though neither could be considered the greatest of actors, both the protagonist and antagonist are charismatic and entertaining, with Schwarzenegger in particular giving a possible career best performance. Toto Recall is, principally, an action film, and that's a label it wears proudly and well. For a mainstream science fiction film though, but perhaps not surprisingly given its source, there is some dearth in here in regards to notions of nature versus nurture and questions of what constitutes reality. It is possible to have a discussion, which we perhaps will in a few moments, of whether or not the events within the film actually happened, or were all actually inside of Doug's head as he suffered a mental collapse within the confines of recall. There's plenty to suggest both throughout. Both the alien planet Kettle and Rachel Ticketin's Melina look suspiciously like the images displayed to Quaid before his memory implant. But then, he did also dream about Melina before going there. The fade to white at the end is film shorthand for waking from a dream. A number of characters throughout predict exactly how the plot will proceed. And there are non-diegetic musical cues related to the memory implant company recall. None of which I buy as it happens, as I am firmly in the It All Happened camp most principally because of the numerous scenes of characters whose actions and conversations the audience sees, but Quaid doesn't and couldn't. Oh, and also the whole memory implant business doesn't make a lick of sense (laughs) and would require time to be missing for a person's life and for not one person in the entire world to ever say anything that contradicted the implanted memory, such as, you didn't go to Mars, you were at work with me, etc. Let alone the Quaid-specific You know you're not actually a spy, right? But that breaks the entire film, so shh, keep that one under your hat. Uh, Also, there's nothing in this film that is impossible to believe, nor as stupid as a giant elevator that, for some reason, goes through the centre of the earth. But that's a thing for a film that doesn't exist, so we can forget about that. (laughs) To return to the point at hand, the fact, though, that A, you could have such conversations about a blockbuster film like this, and B, actually want to shows why Total Recall rightly continues to be regarded as one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, and why there was no need for a ludicrous, brain-dead, point-missing, hack-directed, piss-poor remake, so it's good that nobody made that one. <laughs> it was just an implant put into your brain by the Recall Corporation. No, <laughs> no one can convince you that it actually existed. <laughs> um, yes, I love this film now. I love this film when I spoke about it last a few years back when we did that Mars podcast episode, and I've loved it since I uh, first saw it back in uh, The Mists of Time, I believe it was. Uh, yeah, it, it is just brilliant stuff. It's peak Arnie. 
um, but it's peak Arnie attached to an actual plot that's not just Arnie shoots some people. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it wins on a number of axes. Uh, yeah, it, it's just a fantastic piece of work. Um, it's so tremendously entertaining. So many great lines. I could blab about Mars for years. Um, it's, it's just a, just incredibly entertaining stuff. It's really well paced. It's really well delivered. Um, again, as you know, Arnie, not the world's best thespian, but it really delivers what he needs to do here um, and it's supported by a kind of a cast that's a supporting cast that again none of them individually stand out as being brilliant with a with um, a exception of Ronnie Cox I guess but um, they all kind of sell it really well and mm. the world kind of makes sense it feels like it's a world that's been more or less thought out at least well enough for what it needs to do for the confines of the film. So it, it just kind of really does a really good job of suckering you in and um, getting you along for the ride, uh, like a Johnny Cab does. Um, it's just it's all just a really, really great experience. I, I was heartily uh, enjoying my time with it again, and this is a time that I've spent with it uh, conservatively, like a couple of dozen times, I guess. It's, Total Recall is one of my most watched films. I love it. Uh, it's still great to this day. And if you somehow haven't seen it, yeah, this you should definitely watch. It is very, very good. Very good. Yeah. Um, I wasn't on that Mars episode, so I'd forgotten it was on that. But that means um, we really do. I really could um, blab about Mars for a long time because this is now the third time we've covered on this podcast. Yes. Because <laughs> it was also in the Arnie episode. It's just the best. It's well, the best Arnie film. Yeah. We do like Total Recall. Yes. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the only film we've talked about in three different episodes. Yes. So, uh, yes, it's got that singular distinction. Had I anything else to add to that? I don't think so. I just think it's really good. Yeah, Ronnie Cox is fun. He's, mm. and I think I mentioned this when we talked about it in the Arnold Schwarzenegger episode, but he, he's a B-movie actor, and, and that's fine. And he has been some absolute garbage, like the um, 1990 version of Captain America. The, the truly terrible one with the rubber ears inside of the hat for reasons. <laughs> but uh, the stuff he's done, particularly with uh, Bob Hoven, has been, he's been crazy. He's just, mm. Again, like Kurtwood Smith in Robocop, there's a swagger to him. Yeah. His motivations are understandable. He's not just, just a megalomaniac and it's um, he's an interesting villain. Perhaps a bit less so than Boddicker, although his role, his own role in Robocop. Um, Michael Ironside's good. Sharon Stone's good. And there's nobody in this film really who's like you know like a a top tier thespian or anything. But everybody's given really good performances. Mm. Yeah, it's just a fantastically entertaining film. Yeah, it's maybe peak Verhoeven in his the way that he can take something that is on the surface a relatively silly concept and actually make it fairly smart. You know, um, it's certainly much. Uh, there's much more you can get your teeth into here than you can with, well, certainly any blockbuster of the modern day that I can hear think of. Um, even though they're they're trying to go for these kind of concepts, they don't normally get anywhere near them in the way that Verhoeven kind of just sort of sneaks in through the back door in a lot of his best work, um, which he does in well, at least three of the films we'll talk about here today. So yeah, it, it just works on pretty much every level that it's trying to work on, and uh, can't really say much fairer than that for for a film. So yes, very good, no, very good. Um, uh, and um, unfortunately, I, I do have to acknowledge its existence, but don't watch the remake. Oh, please, do not watch the remake. It's appalling. Um, I, again, misses the point. Like the sequels tend to do. Um, also, it has an elevator 
that goes to the centre of the planet. It, it, it's beyond stupid. Yes. It's not like we keep anything important in the centre. Important and or hot in the centre of our planet, so that's fine. It's- yeah. Um, apparently that's in there because Len Wiseman thought that that was a practical thing to have given that the rest of the planet was difficult to travel because of poison mm. in the air but solid iron core liquid metal outer core no, no, I'm going to stop I'm not going to <laughs> take myself down that trap at all I'm going to save yourself and me um, save yourselves and me right. uh, before we move on Scott, one last thing where do you stand on the did it happen thing with Total Recall? Are you happy for it to be ambiguous? I'm happy enough for it to be ambiguous. Um, I mean, obviously, what's happening on it is so out there that it's kind of it would be kind of hard to believe taking on face value. But there's enough evidence that you could you could support it one way or the other. I'm I'm probably being a bit more realist. Perhaps if you if you forced me at gunpoint, I'd say it's probably just um, Doug Quaid uh, being quadraspazed on a life plug in the Recall Corporation's uh, headquarters. But um, yeah, you could catch me on another day and I'll tell you that no, he did actually he did actually discover that that bastard knows it makes air but wouldn't turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this time I, w- I was much more firm in my belief that it's, it actually happened because the fact you're seeing Richter and everybody and their actions and conversations outside of what he could possibly experience. True, true, true. It, did, it, it, it didn't actually happen. It didn't actually happen. It's just a film. Scott, no? Have I misunderstood don't ruin the it for the kiddies. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, moving on to a very different type of film next with Basic Instinct. Yes, which is another entry into my prestigious list of films that I've surely seen that it turns out that I actually haven't, uh, but I've just seen it parodied so much back in the day that those parodies have become the film in my mind, um, with, I think, perhaps a bit of accidental cross-filing of fatal attraction thrown in for good measure. Um, yeah. But yes. So this is, if this was a, a film, a, a video podcast, this is where we'd insert the clip of gratuitous brief for shot from the Naked Gun films, right? <laughs> Indeed, yes. Um, uh, yeah, but Basic Instinct is more of a return to the kind of films that brought Verhoeven to the dance, uh, being, it says here, an erotic neo-noir. I'm not sure it qualifies on either count, but who am I to argue <laughs> with Joe Westerhouse? Um, anyway, uh, Michael Douglas's San Francisco detective Nick Curran is charged with investigating the death of a retired rock star stabbed to death with an ice pick. Prime suspect is said rock star Boz's Bird, Sharon Stone's Catherine Trammell, a novelist whose last work features murdered with ice picks. Um, suspicious behaviour, or is Catherine being framed? She's not particularly forthcoming when questioned, well, with everything apart from the more delicate parts of her anatomy in that scene, but seeing as there's nothing more than Nick's hunch linking Catherine with the murder, she's free to go. Nick then takes it on himself to obsess over bringing her down, an obsession that worries his girlfriend and psychologist Jean Triplehorn's Dr Beth Garner, uh, given that Nick is still trying to get back on the straight and narrow after accidentally shooting some terrorists uh, some tourists well high up the terrorists would be a very different film that, that's quite a different one of those yes. is certainly more of <laughs> an investigation than the other surely yes um, so Nick tries to get under Catherine's skin who responds in kind claiming to be writing a new novel with Nick as a basis uh, when it seems that she's got more details about his past misdemeanors than is publicly available Nick blows up at the internal affairs cop that's been on his case suspecting him of leaking the information 
this guy soon shows up dead, putting Nick in the frame for that murder. And, well, so it goes, with messy details about both Nick and Catherine's past being brought up and strewn about like dirty laundry, all during a torrid and, frankly, nonsensical affair, building to an equally nonsensical conclusion. Look, I'm not disputing the fact that Joyce Rouse's scripts have made a lot of money over the years. I'm just arguing that whatever success they have found is in spite of the script rather than because of it. Um, that's certainly the case here, as both Douglas and Stone, uh, as well as the array of supporting roles, go really go all out in selling their characters, and in conjunction with this bombing along at a fair old lick, it's not an unenjoyable watch. It's just one that, as soon as its barrage stops, you'll be left with many more questions than answers, but fortunately, won't care enough to bother about any of them. Um, basic Instinct was, at best, a disposable potboiler back in 1992, and I think from the safety of today's far-flung future, uh, the only reason to go back to this would be to try and understand the cultural impact that it had. Although, even in that, in that regard, it was really only that one scene that we're talking about. By no means the weakest on today's list, but it's not really worth a lot of your time, in my opinion. Uh, Drew, do you have any counterpoints to that? Uh, no. I, I, not for the first time in this episode. Although perhaps not as bafflingly. I do wonder about the the strange persistence of this film in pop culture. Mm. Yes. Uh, is it just because of that one scene, which is truly pathetic? I mean, yes. you, you can imagine, being as I am... Um, a man who likes women, that when I first saw this, when I was 13, or maybe 14, and I um, bought the video by lying to one of those mail-order things, Britannia, whatever it was called, um, Britannia Video Club, um, and selected this is possibly my first um, film I watched. And like, you know, as a teenage boy, I was certainly more taken by some of the scenes than others, um, whereas now I find the whole thing very, very... Yes, we should add, a teenage teenage boy in where ready access to Pornhub was not available. Yes. (laughs) Even that, I don't think I I watched it many times then. Um, (laughs) And I certainly hadn't watched it since, although I, I, of course, had owned the DVD for many years because (laughs) that's how I do. Although, I mean, yes, I remembered certain scenes very clearly. I did largely remember the plot, maybe not all the details. Uh, I got watched this, got to the point where Jean Triplehorn says she was at um, university with um, Catherine Chamella. Oh, yes, right, I remember now. <laughs> this is stupid. Um, and yeah, this, I didn't regret watching it again, but um, I was sort of like, it wasn't a film that like, it was so bad I get my teeth into. Um, and I just, it was more one of those films that was just a kind of, eh, you know, sort of a, a shrug and a sigh. It's, yeah. It's a film I've seen again now. I'll never watch it again. It's, I don't know, it's just, again, I go back to, to where it began. I'm kind of puzzled as to why this has the hold and popular cost that it does when even like, 25 years after it's being released, it's um, one of the seasons of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend has Rachel Bloom dresses Sharon Stone in that scene Yeah, when she would have been a baby when this film came out. It's like <laughs> not much beyond that. Um, yeah. Like it's like people just aware of this, but without probably having seen it. And I, I just don't know why is it, is it just that scene again? That's so pathetic. And that whole scene is... It's ridiculous in a way. Certainly, I wouldn't have realised when I was watching it when I was 14 about, uh, like, all of these men are shocked because 
a woman's talking openly about sex. It's like, yeah. wait, can she do that? <laughs> is she allowed to do that? that? That seems to be the tone of that scene. It's like, they're all so discomforted and, and shocked and um, slack-jawed because this woman's talking plainly and openly about sex and things. Like, really? That that was um, a shocking thing in 1982, apparently? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, dear. Uh, we, we, we've come many... Uh, a great distance as a species in many ways not at all <laughs> yeah and the rest of it's just so ho-hum up till the end where it's just very stupid and doesn't make a lick of sense <laughs> again not the first time I'll be seeing that in this episode either it's um, uh, watching it again it's like I was just really about the, the best I could say about it in the end it's like, I don't regret watching it but it's it's not good it's not interesting it doesn't really have anything mm-hmm. They say, I don't even think it particularly captures its time or anything like that either. It's like, it's a kind of slickly produced, but kind of sleazy erotic thriller. Yeah. Um, that's not actually all that erotic. No, no, not even slightly. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was considered at the time, really, but um, yeah, it, it, it seems a lot like one of these occasional instances of like a C-level script getting A-level money and talent thrown at it, um, but not where sometimes that can produce something that's actually quite good this kind of produce something that was as mediocre as you might expect, <laughs> given the material I had to work with um, yeah, it, it, it puzzles me, like as I say, this is the, this is to my recollection at least the first time I've actually seen the full film uh, in one sitting, and it, there's just really nothing remarkable about it um, Apart from arguably a remarkably silly ending, uh, yeah, it's just not not even worth considering, really. Um, yeah, it's just not great um, in any regard. It's it's not awful, as I say. I, I I watched it and enjoyed it well enough because it does. The one thing I can say for it is that it's, it's got a lot of effort put into it, and it goes through it at such a pace that it's kind of kinetic enough to kind of drag you along with it, but. It's by no means good, and I've already forgotten pretty much all the details of it after a couple of days. So, yeah, definitely not going to remember this down the line. Yeah, it's definitely one to recommend. Again, it's it's not good enough or bad enough to in any way you know, recommend, like for ironic viewing or anything. It's yeah. just again, what it just the mystery is what I'm left with. At the end, it's like why has this held on so much? Yeah. And is it just because someone crossed their legs with no underwear on? It's like really. <laughs> Yeah. Is that where we are as a society? I guess it is. Yes, I guess it is. <laughs> I mean, the the greatest legacy is that there was a really funny gag from um, a Naked Gun film in it, and I was like, "That'll do," I guess. But um, <laughs> yes. they just just watch the Naked Gun instead because that's a good film. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we crash all birds then? Yes, let's if we, if we must. Yes. So, um, speaking of. <laughs> Ironically, watching bad films, uh, that's basically Showgirls Raison d'Etre at this point. At this point. Oh, all that it rose to that. Wouldn't <laughs> that be nice? One of the interesting things about Verhoeven's 1995 film Showgirls, like Basic Instinct from a Joe Esther has script, is the cultural mindset that it attained, and to a degree still has. And uh, <laughs> just let me check. Yes, that is the only interesting thing about it. <laughs> this story, oh, I guess that'll have to do. <laughs> this story 
of a troubled young woman who heads to the world's tawdriest city in order to chase her dream of being a dancer and finds that, shockingly, it's not what she imagined, has become a cult classic of sorts and prompted such scintillating debate as Is it so bad it's good? Or rather, is it deliberately bad? Or is it just unintentionally bad? The answer, of course, is it's irrelevant since the salient point is that it's just bad. (laughs) Very, very bad. So bad it's nigh on unwatchable. And while the whole so bad it's good thing might fly for the likes of Amir Shervan or David Pryor, Paul Verhoeven is a real filmmaker who knows how to put a film together. It was derided at the time of its release as both bad and vulgar. The latter being something with which I have, like a bankrupt haulage firm, no truck, criticisms of vulgarity tending to carry with them intimations of a prudish and puritanical, not to mention hypocritical mindset, but I find the appropriate words instead to be crass and cynical, while leaving some room for vapid. (laughs) The whole film screams that it's provocative for the sake of being provocative, and has nothing of substance to say at all. The Troubled Young Woman is saved by the Bella Luminous Elizabeth Berkeley and her character Nomi Malone, a spectacularly unlikable, ungrateful and selfish moron who is less a woman with a chip on her shoulder than a walking chip with shoulders, (laughs) whom we meet hitchhiking on the side of the road. Within moments of being picked up by a driver, she's changing his radio to another station and brandishing a knife at him. While the possession of a knife may be a sensible precaution, the scene is only the first of many in which Nomi shows a spectacular lack of gratitude for the help she's almost entirely dependent on for most of the film. She soon arrives in Las Vegas, and looking, as she does throughout the film, every bit as gaudy and ugly as that city, with the open-mouthed, vacant-eyed look of an inflatable party doll, Miss Berkeley should have been well-suited to a film that treats its heroine like a shiny new toy as she was described by Janet Maslin of the New York Times, something which is itself perhaps some kind of attempt at the statement, as her makeup is notably different from any other woman in the film, and Berkeley's not an ugly woman. In Las Vegas, and while still looking ugly, she'll luck into a place to stay, but to be ungrateful, luck into an addition for a popular dance show, and be extremely ungrateful, get used and abused by men around her, including Kyle MacLachlan with the hair of an absolute tit, and risk a fellow dancer's life, and certainly endanger her livelihood, in order to get ahead. Her friend will also, for no additional value to the story that I can see, be brutally gang-raped in a house full of people, but have no police involvement, and in retaliation for which Nomi will beat up one of the men responsible. Something incidentally seen in less detail than the rape, as if that is somehow commensurate with the crime. Despite working as a lap and pole dancer to strip club, Nomi will become shocked and upset about being asked to strip to her audition, an audition for an attraction that she knows is a topless dance show. She will later become jealous about a man whom she physically assaulted, and yet who still bailed her out of jail, but that she otherwise doesn't have a relationship with, in a scene that portrays her as impossibly dim, seeing the engagement ring on his fiancée's finger, but not, seemingly, understanding it until he himself tells her that they're getting married, at which point she gets sad. And all of this will be accompanied by, to return to Janet Maslin again, whose review tickled me, the soul-numbing stupidity that plagues Mr. Esther has his dialogue. 
the whole thing is a miserable experience, before ending in a stupid and highly improbable manner that presumably is meant to give some closure to Nomi, who clearly doesn't deserve it. The entire film feels like it's some kind of great joke on Verhoeven's part. But if it is, it's not funny. Berkeley's acting is woefully, laughably bad. From her pathetic and regular flouncing temper tantrums that a toddler given to the dramatic might think were a bit much, to her orgasms by way of epileptic fit, and, curiously for a character so dancer, her complete lack of ability at dancing. <laughs> We've seen in Total Recall that Verhoeven can get a good performance out of actors with limited range, and he certainly understands character and story, and that films should probably have them. So how did we end up with this? You might argue over the effectiveness of it, but it's usually possible to argue that Verhoeven's excesses and provocations have a purpose. But that's not so in Showgirls. It's a button-pushing, boundary-challenging exercise that seems to exist just to push buttons. It's full, though not as full as press and reputation might lead you to suspect, of nudity and sex, but it is perhaps the least erotic or titillating thing that I have ever seen. Thing that I've seen that is supposed to be erotic or titillating, I mean, I'm not comparing it to the beach assault and saving Private Ryan or anything. (laughs) The last couple of years has seen two documentaries made about showgirls, and an entirely baffling reappraisal of it as some sort of ahead-of-its-time proto-me-too piece which is, frankly, bananas. I remind you that this was written by Joe Esterhaz, writer of Basic Instinct and Sliver, whose general indiscretion and insight can be well illustrated by his quote that I was a militant smoker, and in my case, I think I particularly used smoking because of what I felt was a kind of politically correct big brother of assault and smoking. This is a stinking turd of a film, and this isn't <laughs> even ironically enjoyable. Just say no. So again, the curse of Esher House, rearing uh, <laughs> its head again. Yeah, um, th- this is a film that I'm only glad exists because some of the dialogue around it is interesting and funny. Um, the <laughs> film itself is garbage. Um, it's it's not even so you know bad. It's good. It's just so bad. It's bad. I, I'm I'm sort of glad it exists purely as say because of the the, the facts that you can dredge up from around it, like like the the actual professional dancers that you had uh, as part of the cast being told to dance deliberately badly, so that, <laughs> so that the lead uh, wouldn't look so bad by comparison. It's just, it's just not very good. It's not very good in the slightest. It's, it's just absolute drivel. Um, and I agree with what you're saying. It, it doesn't really have any kind of purpose. Uh, behind it, and all the other ones, uh, certainly the sort of the films we've spoken about before, like Robocop, Total Recall, you can kind of see, even if it's a silly premise, it's well executed, and there's some point behind it. Uh, this one, it's not particularly well executed, and there does not appear to be any point behind it. And yeah, so it's the worst of all worlds, really. As I say, some of the reappraisal is you know baffling uh, to me. Um, I, I've seen some defences that maybe in the abstract I can kind of agree with, seeing it's it's like an in an in antithesis to the likes of A Star is Born, it's showing more of the kind of an arguably more realistic gritty underside to the world of um, stardom and all that kind of stuff. But even if you grant that as being correct, and I don't, but even if you did, it's still a very bad film with very bad acting and appalling dance numbers in a film that's supposed to be about dancing. Um, no, it's, it's just not good. Um, this one I did definitely watch um, a few years, well, 
I say a few years back, so probably about a decade and a half back at this point. Uh, but yes, I had no interest really in returning to it, but um, it seems like the kind of film that we should talk about if we're talking about his um, Everoven's Hollywood era, uh, because it's, uh, it, it's it obviously was a, a colossal clagger um, for obvious reasons. And uh, yeah, it's... it's Took a, bit of the, uh, took a bit of shine off his his career, um, and frankly, rightly so. Uh, there's just not really anything to commend or excuse this film. Really, it's no. garbage. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of offensively bad yeah. um, and tasteless. And yeah, it's, I hadn't seen this before. I, I've been aware of it ever since it came out, um, mm-hmm. and I remember the press around it at the time, but I'd never actually seen it. And I watched it. It was a real struggle to get through this. So bad. I don't think Elizabeth Berkeley's that bad an actor. Uh, Around the same time, she was had a very small role, but she was in any given Sunday, Hmm. and she was passable enough in that, and certainly looked like an attractive woman, not the strange sort of what is that woman for the New York Times said some sort of sex doll in this with her. Terrible makeup the whole time. But again, it stands out because the other women, Gina Gershon, for instance, even when they're on the stage where their makeup is necessarily like much heavier, mm-hmm. don't look like Elizabeth Bradley looks like in just our, our off days. <laughs> yes. um, so I don't know why she's made up in the way she is. And so part of it, you think it's partly intentional, but her, her acting, it's up there for worst I've ever seen. Yeah. It's awful. It's like all histrionic all the time. It's yeah, the, so grating. Yeah. Little tantrum when that woman, for some reason, decides to help her at the start, becomes her roommate later, and buys her lunch or dinner, and she just like starts throwing an entire bottle of ketchup over her fries and having a wee <laughs> tantrum. And the film's full of that, and that's basically her entire acting style for everything, apart from later on when she's pretending to have an orgasm like like I say she sounds or looks like she's having an, epile- an epileptic fit yeah <laughs> it's I mean, it's so bad that you feel like it's kind of deliberate but then like to what end would that be and I don't yes. believe so and, and why she's the one person in the film that's that bad yeah <laughs> uh, and yeah of all the people that are available to cast in this role I'm sure there's a huge number of people who can actually dance yeah, <laughs> or she just stomps across the stage and moves in the most unerotic and arrhythmic manner you can possibly imagine. Which is why, like, for the first perhaps third of the film, I really thought it was some sort of like meta film that was like just some like tremendous piss take that they like, some sort of point. And by the end of it, it's like, oh no, it's just garbage. I've seen that defense come up. I think. It might even have been from Verhoeven himself, maybe, or maybe it was Esther House. I, I forget which one, but one of them was saying it. But it sounds a lot like the defence of the um, what was it a Trolls film? Um, <laughs> it's that kind of idea. It's like they just made something awful and are trying to style it out and, <laughs> and claim it as as being a victory where it was in fact an absolute defeat. So yes, yeah, it's every bit as convincing as no, no, parsecs. It is a measure of time because it's about how well you can. Um, Use your navigational computer. Yes, yes, George. Yes. Uh, and, and you too, Paul. Shush now. <laughs> uh, yeah, and like the, the, the really weird like reappraisal that recently, some sort of proto-me-too thing. But that's mental. 
Yes. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, even if like the film in any way supported that, which it doesn't, do you really think that Joe Esther has is capable of that? <laughs> do one. <laughs> oh no, it's so awful. Oh, it's it is quite comfortably one of the worst things I've ever seen. Yes. Um, yes. Feel like in like for something that's an actual real film. You know, like, and yeah, it's not like money a, and talent behind it. Yes, this is not. Yeah, like, it's not Hollywood cop or something or Sammy Vai cop. You know, where like the director has no idea what they're doing and it doesn't have like you know actual professional actors in it or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, it's like no, uh, and coming from someone who made RoboCop and Total Recall, it's just how, why, what? <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> um, but there's absolutely no. There's no ironic viewing potential with it. It's just bad. Yeah. And it, it kind of baffles me that this became a sort of, a, yeah, a Trolls-like film and a kind of midnight movie kind of thing with this cult film. It's like, you know, I think you're trying too hard here. Yes, I... It's, it's not entertainingly good. It's just uh, entertainingly bad. It's just bad, bad. Bad, 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 bad. Yes, I certainly I. I and my liver can no longer tolerate the amount of vodka that would be required to make this film funny. So, no, just just say no, kids. Just say no. <laughs> yep, do one. Right, we're going back to more familiar territory for Paul Verhoeven next, Scott, um, which is both A, science fiction, and B, good films. Yes. yes. Ah, yes, uh, Starship Troopers. It would be somewhere over 20 years ago when I first lost my heart to a Starship Trooper, crashing light in <laughs> hyperspace, fighting for the Federation, hand-in-hand, hand, we'll conquer space. <laughs> and we did speak about that love a couple of years back or so in our uh, sci-fascism episode, so again, I'll try and keep this uh, to recovering of old ground to minimum. Uh, but Verhoeven here adapts and also completely subverts Robert Heinlein's novel of the same name, uh, just as his casting subverts the meaning of the age of high school students. Casper, uh, <laughs> definitely not 18 Van Dien plays our protagonist here, one Johnny Rico, a jock from a wealthy family who defies their will and signs up for military service. This is the only way to become a citizen with voting rights in this futuristic junta. While not having much to offer intellectually, he's assigned to mobile infantry, while his classmates, such as his girlfriend, Denise Richards' Carmen Ibanez, heads off to pilot school, Neil Patrick Harris's slightly psychic Carl Jenkins heads off to military intelligence, and before long, Dina Meyer's besotted Dizzy Flores joins Johnny in the inventory as another leg to a love quadrangle. At least once, Carmen is assigned to train alongside Patrick Muldoon's Xander Haircut 100 Baraclau. The soap opera stuff takes a bit of a backseat once war kicks off in earnest, as a race of arachnids, or bugs, get all shirty when humans start encroaching on their space and commence hurling asteroids at us, including one that devastates Wernsaris, killing Johnny's family and giving him the necessary motivation to get through boot camp after almost going home when a hilarious and fatal accident occurs on his watch on a training exercise. Medic! <laughs> Uh, the rest of it uh, you probably already have the gist of lots and lots of shooting of bugs a mix of some early-ish CG that more or less holds up well better than a lot of the year I'd argue uh, mainly because there's enough practical effects and delightful models mixed in to get the disbelief a little suspended which alongside some impeccable production design makes us a delight to to revisit (laughs) press X if you want to know more Um, now famously this has had something of a frosty reception back on release but has been reappraised over the years and unlike showgirls (laughs) actually is worth of it. Um, we'll get to that, but most of these reappraisals don't tend to place a lot of focus on how much fun Starship Troopers is, and they really should. It's a riot, with a great blend of over-the-top humour and action that's way more satisfying than any, su- any superhero film. 
Uh, said reappraisals are more about pointing out, apparently to the terminally stupid, that this is not, in fact, glorifying a fascist state <laughs> and its lust for violence, but satirising this. I have long been unable to fathom how the former view ever came about, as this is very much a film where its irony is clearly visible from space with the naked eye. Of course, a director who grew up in a country occupied by a fascist regime did not make a pro-fascist film, due dummies. Uh, <laughs> For a movie that is, I've perhaps spoken about this a few times before, on the face of it, pretty stupid. It's got a lot to say for itself, uh, mostly in ways that have become more obviously relevant over the past few years, sadly. Uh, the continuing march of the military-industrial complex, the continual need for an enemy to justify that, the media manipulation that vilifies the enemy and others them, as well as all the other signposts on the way to a fascist state, and that applies just as well inside the USA that it's referencing as seen with the militarised police response to the BLM demonstrations and the like. Uh, so it is a deeply depressing film to put any kind of thought into, but a wildly entertaining one on the surface of things, and what could not be more highly recommended than that. Uh, yes, it's really good. <laughs> it's still really good. This is a really entertaining romp that actually, again, with most of Verhoeven's best uh, works in the science fiction genre, has a bit of meat on its bones to actually discuss and think about after the <laughs> after the adrenaline's faded from the, just the, the shooty bangs of it all. Yeah, another really good outing for him. I am, as I said when we last spoke about this, and as you said, Scott, sci-fascism episode a few years ago, um, I am still very much tempted to call bullshit on the whole this is a completely misunderstood film. Um, mm. There was a whole lot of think pieces um, around it. It was like misunderstood. Like, and I still don't really buy that. However, my opinion of the rest of my fellow humans continues to diminish day by day. <laughs> yes. And I know that people completely misunderstand things like Full Metal Jacket and Fight Club. Mm. And you can take entirely <laughs> the opposite message from them. So doing it for this film is it's not out with the bounds of possibility, though. I still, as I say, have, have my doubts that that was ever actually the case. Silly, because I don't live under a rock and I'm not some sort of brain-dead simpleton, <laughs> always got it. Um, yes. You Craig and I would have seen this together when it came out and released. We liked it from the beginning and understood it from the beginning. Because again, not idiots. Look, there's a lot of things you can say about Verhoeven work, but generally, subtlety is not one of them. <laughs> this seems pretty obvious from the get-go what yes, this was about. Yes, it's why I, I, I've never bought the whole... Um, I've never bought the whole... It was like the, the most understood... One of the just most misunderstood films around. Like, yeah, get bent. Do you think some sort of clever think piece to write? I'm like, no. It's like, only the dumbest people, but again, as I say, my um, opinion of the rest of humanity is not improving, alas. I think what actually uh, might have happened is it was just one of the most um, obviously reviewed from a trailer um, films that has <laughs> happened, and so people just got the wrong end of the, the, the stick that way. And I'm probably willing to bet that's probably what happened. Most people that reviewed it just didn't watch it, uh, because... <laughs> That's oh, so the Daily Mail effect. Happened. Yes. <laughs> yes, the Daily Mail effect indeed. It is a really entertaining film. I didn't actually rewatch that for this episode because I didn't need to. No, it's already um, pretty much tattooed on our brains by this point, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and yes. I think that that episode we referenced may have only been within the last two years, actually. So, yeah. 
I watched it quite recently, uh, and I remember it really well. It, it's really entertaining. It perhaps suffers from its main cast members, its protagonist, Neil Patrick Harris aside, being limited in their ability. <laughs> shall, I, shall I put it? Um, Denise Richards is... Well, she's pretty. <laughs> Look, at least she's not playing a nuclear physicist, so, you know, got that going for it. <laughs> yes. Um, or, you know, interacting with a giant T-Rex played by Paul Walker. Oh, <laughs> oh. But, to be fair to her, she, she's not the worst thing I've ever seen. She's not Elizabeth Berkeley in uh, yeah. <laughs> Showgirls. So there, there's that. It was always a silver lining. But yeah, it's um, Casper Van Dien. Again, he's pretty and looks good in uniform. I guess that's why he was cast. Yeah. Uh, there may be slightly more deliberation uh, or deliberateness in his uh, casting than um, some others, actually. Um, he's kind of like the poster boy soldier. Yeah. I don't think he's particularly expected by the director to be a great actor, but still, I, I kind of wish he was better. <laughs> Although, at least this isn't him in... Oh, God, what was it? Firestorm? Was that the terrible um, Casper Van Dien film we watched on Amazon Video? Amazon Prime? With the, with the intelligent tornadoes made of fire? I think it might have been that, yes. <laughs> uh, that, wasn't uh, ring, that wasn't ringing a bell until you mentioned the tornadoes were made of fire. Yeah, okay, yeah, it was stupid, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. um... Uh, his career beyond perhaps Starship Troopers 3 um, which again misses the point of the original but at least unlike the second one is actually seemingly in the same universe and yeah. having anything to do with it um, beyond that I don't think his career has gone from strength to strength no. um, but uh, yeah, beyond that it's uh, you've got Michael Ironside having um, some good support Jake Boosie's well never welcome but I guess he could be worse <laughs> weird things like one of the golden girls being sort of blind fascist science teacher yes <laughs> that's very strange casting a uh, bunch of <laughs> kind of really weird stuff going on there but yeah it's it's really fun i swore that i would stop doing what i always do which is keep repeating myself and i'm doing it again <laughs> i like starship troopers you should watch it <laughs> <laughs> yes yes this is a very very good film again it's it's rare for one director to have done so many good science fiction films. Um, uh, certainly in a relatively short space of time, but yes, he's <laughs> for over knocked out three of them. So there's no no debating that really. Uh, yes, you should watch this and the other ones. What we've already done, spoken of. But should you also watch the next film we're going to speak about, which is Hollow Man? And the answer is no. But true, why is that answer no? <laughs> the answer is no. Yes, you you are you are correct. So, in Hollow Man, a loose adaptation of H.G. Wells' science fiction classic, The Invisible Man, Kevin Bacon plays Sebastian Kane, an arrogant scientific genius leading a secret Pentagon research project to find a reversible method to turn people invisible by the means of, and they quote, phase shifting a human being out of quantum sync with the visible universe. Which are. Which are certainly some words that screenwriter Andrew W. Marlowe put in the vicinity of one another. <laughs> Kane, your typical Porsche 911 driving rock star scientist, the kind we're all so familiar with, <laughs> is, amongst his many negative traits, 
incredibly impatient. And when progress on his research isn't quick enough, he accelerates human trials by injecting himself with his magic serum. He turns invisible, a process so thorough it can also make the food inside his body invisible, even when vomited out of it, Uh, but he can't turn back. At first this is a nuisance, because his invisible eyelids mean he can't close his eyes to the light. Of course, his retinas are also invisible, so he can't see the light anyway, but science as you may already be able to guess, is not Hollow Man's strong suit. <laughs> Though that's of little concern as it's mostly a special effects showcase with some humans around the edges, with only lip service paid to anything else. In a short time though, invisibility has caused psychosis, and Kane starts killing a bunch of people, most particularly the rest of the staff of his lab. Poor Elizabeth Shue. Her game performance here is far better than this nonsense deserves. Because he's now a god or something... Kane must be stopped. He is stopped. It's not very edifying. Thinking of things more around the film, though, I worry about the personality and motivations of Paul Verhoeven at times, and Hollow Man does nothing to ease that. While preparing these notes, I came across this quote from the director. Hollow Man leads you by the hand and takes you with Sebastian into teasing behaviour, naughty behaviour, and then really bad and ultimately evil behaviour. At what point do you abandon him? I'm thinking when he rapes the woman would probably be the moment that people decide. <laughs> this is not exactly my type of hero. Though I must say a lot of viewers follow him further than you would expect. Really? And, yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Is that that's and, not the case? Is it? Really? Um, I, I, I hope not, but he seems to think so. Um, but, oh, he's uh, so yes. Dutch. <laughs> yes, this is another Paul Verhoeven film featuring rape, which is really why I'm, I have my concerns about him. Setting aside that at no point at all in the film does Sebastian Kane even approach uh, even approach Hero, and that I disliked him within minutes due to his obviously being a colossal arsehole, pretty much the very first thing that he does in waking up as an invisible man is to sexually assault a woman. And that's before the rape, but if you're still on board with him after this, I suggest you have problems. H.G. Wells' 1897 novel, The Invisible Man, is about a man who is trapped by his own hubris and who has become insane and violent after spending too long unable to see himself. In Hollow Man, Sebastian Kane is a villain whose hubris gives him the means to fulfil the potential of the terrible and violent person that he clearly already was. Wells was inspired by Plato's Republic and the story of the Ring of Gyges, with Glaucon's central notion, with which Socrates disagreed to being that... No man would keep his hands off of what was not his own when he could safely take what he liked out of the market, or go into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure, or kill or release from prison whom he would, and in all respects be like a god among men. That's an interesting philosophical idea. Hollow Man is a boring and brainless slasher film in which a bad man becomes a worse man. Explorations of morality and curiosity happen in other films. (laughs) <laughs> but hey, it has some impressive special effects. I didn't actually have the worst time with Hollow Man, but it feels pretty generic in many ways, and certainly of the Paul Verhoeven films I've seen so far, it's the one that felt most like he was simply a director for hire. Dismissive grunt out of ten. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. This this seems like the kind of film that he was brought on to purely because he's someone who could wrangle the special effects well enough. Um 
there's like I think a few instances of that in the past as well. Um, yeah, it is just not very good um, for the reasons you've already eloquently outlined. It is fundamentally broken because its central character is a bad man who overnight becomes an even much worse man and goes yes. on a kill kill crazy slasher frenzy. Like you say, and as Wells and Plato <laughs> came came across all those times uh, all those years ago, there's. A central idea here that makes a lot of sense, but this is the worst possible implementation of it that I've seen. Uh, it is just not very good on any aspect, again, except for the special effects. My primary and only positive memory of this film was that I managed to pick it up on DVD for about two quid at some point not long after it was released, and I thought that was quite good. Then I watched the film and uh, was rather less impressed with the value for money uh, proposal that that offered, uh, because I don't think it's even worth that amount of money. Um, it's just no good at all. Um, I would say even if you want something of this kind of ilk, but more modern, go for the Invisible Man film that Lee 1L put out a couple of years back. Not a perfect film by any respect of the imagination, but it kind of employs a lot of the same ideas but much more sensibly with a protagonist that you could actually get behind and a villain that you could actually um, get behind well um, you could actually you know see how that would have happened even if it was invisible at the time it's just a better a better uh, put together uh, notion of the same ideas yeah this The Hollow Man is just a bad film in every aspect Um, Bacon's awful um, the only reason I think you might not hate his character is because he's so unconvincing as the character in early stretch that you might not you might not think he's quite as bad as he's coming across kind of because he's sort of so yeah he just doesn't convince at any point he doesn't convince as the sort of evil light version of himself or the evil evil version of himself <laughs> even when you can't actually see him um, no there's no, it's, it's just a bad film Again, I'm repeating myself, but I do feel that it's important to get across that it is, in fact, a bad film and very much worth <laughs> not watching. Uh, while you could argue it's a more enjoyable watch than Showgirls, again, that's a bar so low that it has been effectively buried. So, yeah, just don't. Just don't. Yes. The way I would frame it is that it's not a more enjoyable watch than Showgirls, it's a less unenjoyable watch. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> It's, yeah, because I got to the end of it and it's like, oh, that was bad, but um, I certainly wasn't quite so upset during it as I was Showgirls. I didn't <laughs> hate it entirely from beginning to end. Um, I hate <laughs> you, everything about it. Yes. You can um, at least see at some point there was a good idea somewhere, the, the genesis of Hollow Man, even if it wasn't um, anyone really involved with the, the production yeah. of the films. Uh, yes, but uh, yeah. no, no. Yeah, I mean, and and it's not enough to hang a film on, let alone redeem this, but the special effects, particularly for 2000, were quite impressive. Yes, yes. And there was some sort of interest in that. And again, like I'd mentioned with um, Total Viewcon and Robocop earlier, there are some sort of like bits of the technology stuff um, and things that are going to happen later that are just like put there for the audience to notice without kind of being too focused on or too spelled out, which I appreciated. And mm-hmm. It's kind of frustrating that there were bits and pieces I appreciated. Like when the the scientists are called upon to deal with this invisible man, they are immediately doing sensible things like trying some way to um, like paint or some other liquid or or something to to make him show up. Yeah. And various other things. It was like rather than just like 
you know, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then it's kind of, sort of a committee meeting to come up with it. It's like, well, no, they're, they're meant to be smart people. Yeah. And they do the kind of obvious things that like, probably anybody would do, but like you tend not to see in films. There were bits and pieces that I liked. And, and I did enjoy Elizabeth Shewitt, even though like, she, she's way too good in this film for this yeah. um, nonsense plot. I mean, she's probably, everybody else is kind of, they're not bad, they're just there. This problem's film beyond Kevin Bacon isn't acting. It's the plot, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it, it doesn't feel like a Paul Verhoeven film, um, for the most part. It's kind of misses the point, has no interesting ideas, there's nothing interesting to say, but it's better than Showgirls. <laughs> for what very little that is worth. Yes. Yes, and it, it is very, very little. Um, <laughs> that is um, the very definition of damning with faint praise. Yes. Well, uh, I suppose Brendan on a bit of a downer, but we did have three of our favourite films of all time in there as well, so, you know, it balances out in the end. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I don't know, I, I, I request to see you're working on that one, but uh, <laughs> so miserable experience that they have with showgirls, but yes. uh, well, we'll see. Right, uh, that will wrap us up for today, but if there's anything you'd like to get in touch with us, then you can contact us through the mediums of email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or twitter at fudsonfilm or facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. And until next time, I'll bid you adieu, and I'm sure Drew might do too, but in slightly less of a pitchy accent. <laughs> Aviando. Aviando.